Hey guys, welcome to episode 10 of the Mysterious Benedict Society Read Aloud podcast. In the last episode, they got Sticky out of the drapeweed, and they learned that the island was put on an island of mine shafts, so that's what they believe that trap thing they thought it was. And then they got a tour of the island and of the Institute by Jackson and Jilson, who are still them annoying selves. Uh, and they just learned a little more about the Institute and how it works. So let's read chapter 12. Chapter 12. Beware the Gemini. The children were shown into an ordinary classroom where sunlight streamed through the windows. The desk sat empty and an executive waited to speak with Jackson and Jilson. As the children chose their seats, the executives held a private discussion. Then Jilson and the other executive hurried out. Shouldn't be long, Jackson told the children. The other group's finishing their tour, and apparently our recruiters have brought in some unexpected new arrivals. They're being admitted right now, so we'll start a few minutes late, okay? He stepped out of the room, then he stepped back in. Okay? Okay, the children replied. Jackson shook his head scornfully and withdrew. He's a sweetheart, Kate said. I don't know how you can joke, says Sticky. My stomach's on knots. Rennie's stomach felt much the same. Did you hear what Jilson said about the mine shafts? You bet I did, Kate said. It makes no sense. Why set traps and then warn us about them? They don't want us to leave the paths, Rennie speculated. And if we do, they want to know it. They want to catch us at it. Kate's blue eyes shone with excitement. If that's true, there might be traps everywhere. You two aren't helping my stomach, Sticky said. Soon the door swung open and a dozen other new arrivals entered, escorted by several executives and a pair of men wearing fine suits and two watches apiece. There followed a flurry of introductions, desk choosing, and general mayhem, during which the executives watched the children very intently, as if they didn't quite trust them not to bolt from their room or start a brawl. Rennie was painfully aware of their eyes upon them. He already felt conspicuous. But new kids always felt conspicuous, he reminded himself. And so he smiled and nodded, trying hard to seem as happy and eager as the other newcomers. His fellow members of the Mysterious Bendix Society were making the same attempt, some with less success than others. Kate smiled charmingly. Sticky managed a grimace that resembled a smile, though it also resembled the expression you might wear in a sandstorm. Constance nodded a few times in a friendly way, until the nodding grew sleepy and her eyelids drooped. Reggie nudged, Rainy nudged her. Constance jerked her head upright and blinked in surprise, if she didn't quite know where she was. As it happened, this was exactly how a couple of other newcomers looked. A hefty bell-shaped girl and a wiry boy sitting near the front. Both wore dazed expressions and ill-fitting clothes. Hers were too small, his too large, and both had wet hair from recent baths. Except for Constance, they were the only children who didn't seem happy and excited. Perhaps they were just sleepy, though you would have thought free fresh baths and a dread of new school would have gotten them wide awake. Rennie saw one of the men in suits glance at the dazed-looking children, giving them a little wink and a friendly smile, and suddenly it hit him. Recruiters, Jackson had said. That must be what the Institute's scouts were called, which probably meant that the unexpected new arrivals Jackson had mentioned. Could it be? Could these kids really have been kidnapped? And they just sat there looking sleepy? That seemed unlikely, Rennie thought. He must be missing something, and yet... Rennie's attention was drawn away. The commotion was dying down. Jilson had taken her place at the front, apparently waiting for a cue from Jackson, who stood in the doorway. Jackson nodded, and Jilson raised her hands for silence. 
A hush fell over the room. Then, in a booming voice, Joseph announced, "'And now, everyone, it is our great pleasure to introduce you to the esteemed founder, president, and principal of our beloved institute, Mr. Lethadro Curtin.' Everyone watched the door with anxious eyes. For a long, expectant pause, they heard nothing except a sort of distant whine. But the whine grew louder by the moment, giving way to a tremendous grinding screech, as of a car changing gears and spinning its tires. And into the room shot a man in a motorized wheelchair, moving so quickly with such apparent recklessness that every child in the room scooted backward in fear of being struck. Mr. Curtin had perfect control of his chair, however, and as he raced down the rows of his expertly jogged the children's feet in sharp corners of their desks, smiling as he went. The wheelchair was unlike anything they'd ever seen. It had four evenly spaced wheels like a cart, with button controls on the armrests and pedal controls beneath each foot. Mr. Curtin was snugged into the padded chair with a seatbelt across his chest and lap, and the chair rolled so quickly that his thick white hair flew back from his head. He wore large round glasses with silver reflective lenses, so that his eyes couldn't be seen. His cheeks and chin were reddened by a recent shave, and his nose was large and lumpy, like a vegetable. His entrance would have been a shocking sight for any child, but it was far worse for those in mysterious Benedict society. That nose, so much like a vegetable, and that hair, so thick and white, would have been enough to give them a start. But that suit he wore, that green plaid suit, was the clincher. With faces aghast, the four children gaped at the man, and then at one another, for they saw at once that Mr. Curtin was Mr. Benedict himself. Rennie's mind was racing, searching for an explanation. Had Mr. Benedict been kidnapped? Was he being forced somehow to pretend he was Mr. Curtin? But why? And how could he have done it so quickly? They'd seen Mr. Benedict just that morning. Perhaps Mr. Benedict had a split personality, like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. That seemed unlikely, too. But everything was unlikely these days, and Rennie preferred almost any explanation to the one that seemed most plausible. For some awful, unknown reason, Mr. Benedict had tricked them. Even as Rennie thought this, the man introduced as Mr. Curtin brought his chair to a screeching stop, whirled it around, and shot forward to sit right beside him. He positioned his chair so perfectly that his face was mere inches from Rennie's, so close that Rennie could see his own alarm and searching face reflected in those shiny silver lenses. So close that he smelled the man's pungent breath, and then Mr. Benedict, that is Mr. Curtin, leaned closer still. Any closer on that lumpy nose would have poked Rennie in the eye. What is it, young man? Why are you looking at me that way? Rennie thought fast. Either Mr. Benedict, Mr. Curtin, somehow didn't recognize him, or else he was pretending not to. It's your nose. It looks like a pink cucumber. His friend stared at Rennie in amazement, but several children burst into giggles. Mr. Curtin frowned, his fists clenched, his face darkened. And yet for a long time he did not speak. His fury seemed to be building up to an explosion. Rennie waited in mounting dread, but then the color drained from Mr. Curtin's face. His frown changed into a satisfied expression, and he even smiled. "'You children,' he said, "'I always forget. Children are so capable of open rudeness. That's all right, young man. I won't hold it against you.' We need students who aren't afraid to speak the truth. What is your name? Renard Muldoon, sir, but everyone calls me Rennie. Welcome, Renard, said Mr. Curtin, and with this he turned and rocketed to the front of the room, where he spun once more to the face of students, throwing his arms wide. Welcome, Rennie, Rennie Muldoon, and welcome all of you. Welcome to the Learning Institute for the Very Enlightened. There was a burst of applause, and Rennie and his friends again glanced at one another, 
more secretly this time, with looks of unhappy bewilderment. Everything's backward, when he was thinking, trying desperately to make sense of it. Mr. Benedict puts you at ease, but Mr. Curtin terrifies you. Mr. Benedict admires children, but Mr. Curtin looks down on them. And Mr. Benedict seems to know everything about you, but Mr. Curtin seems to know nothing. At least, not yet. Meanwhile, Mr. Curtin had begun his welcoming speech. At other academies, he declared, children are only taught how to survive. Reading skills, mathematics, art, and music lessons. Such a waste of a student's time. Here at the Learning Institute for the Very Enlightened, Mr. Curtin boomed, writing the name out on a chalkboard and circling all capital letters. We show our students how to live. There followed another great round of applause, but Rennie was still thinking. Everything's backward. And glancing at the circled letters on the chalkboard, he felt a sudden terrible chill, for live spelled backward is evil. As Jilson had explained, the children were to free their lights and televisions all night long, if they chose, provided their rooms were tar- dark by ten o'clock. When that hour struck, Rennie was peering through a crack in the open door. Sure enough, just as Kate had predicted, an executive was on patrol. This one, a gangly teenager with gigantic feet, had just turned off the corridor light, and in the relative darkness was checking to see if any light escaped from beneath the students' doors. Rennie switched off their own light and quietly closed the door. Who's out there? Sticky asked. S.Q. Padellian. Remember him? Kate joked that S.Q. must be short for Sasquatch. A knock sounded on the door. When Rennie opened it, S.Q. Padellian stood in the doorway with his arms crossed. His good-natured face, high above them, was just visible in the moonlight coming in through the window. You fellows need to keep it down, he said, though not unkindly. You're new, so I thought perhaps you wouldn't understand the rules or lack of them. And I'm sure enough when I put my ear to your door and listened... I could hear a sort of murmur, which means you were talking, and that won't do. You're free to talk, of course, but only if you don't make any sound. Okay, the boy's mouth soundlessly. Okay, just so you know, have a good night now, he said, pulling the door closed and crying out in pain. The door opened quickly. S.Q. withdrew the tip of his foot, and the door closed again. That must happen to him a lot, Rennie whispered. From above them came a rustling sound of ceiling panel being slid aside. And in the glow of the flashlight beam, they saw Constance's dusty, cobweb-covered, exasperated face. Sticky fetched a chair, and soon Constance and Kate had come down to join them. Kate turned off her flashlight just as a cloud passed over the moon outside. Instantly, the room was shrouded in gloom. "'What can it possibly mean?' Kate whispered. "'It's a nasty trick,' Constance said. "'I think he's crazy,' said Sticky. "'What do you think, Rennie?' Rennie had pondered this all day. I think we should send a message to shore. If we haven't been tricked, if Mr. Benedict is being forced to act against his will, or if there's some other explanation, the reply may give us some idea of what to do. The others agreed, and Sticky was elected to send the message, he being the quickest of Morse code. Climbing onto the television cabinet, which stood beneath the window, Sticky peered out over the plaza below. At the edge of it, he saw a familiar face facing away from the Institute, gazing down toward the bridge. We'll have to wait. I can see Mr. Benedict. I mean, Mrs. Curtin, I guess. What's he doing? Constance asked. Just sitting in his chair doing nothing. Maybe he's contemplating what a terrific madman he is, Kate said. Hold on, Sticky said. A couple of executives have gone out, and now they're all leaving together. Boy, he sure can't move fast in that thing. They're puffing to keep up. Sticky looked in all directions. The plaza was empty, and he saw no lookouts on the paths. No boats on the water. No one on the distant bridge. Okay, the coast is clear. 
Kate handed him her flashlight and a Morse code sticky flash their message. We see Mr. B when we see Mr. C. How can this be? They had decided to be brief and cryptic as possible, in case an unseen executive sped spy the signals. Now, as they waited minute after long minute for a response, they began to worry the message hadn't been understood. Or worse, that they hadn't seen it at all. There's no one there, Constance said loudly. The other three shished her. She stuck out her tongue but continued in a whisper. This proves it was a trick. The others are all in on it. They wanted to get us on the island, and now we'll never get off again. Let's be patient, Rennie said. If they don't respond soon, we'll send the message again. If they don't reply to that, then I'll have to agree with Constance. We've been tricked, or else something has gone terribly wrong, and we'd better start thinking about how to get away. Hold on, says Tiki. I see a light in the trees. They're flashing a response. The others held their breaths for what seemed a terribly long time, then Sticky whispered. Boy, when Rhonda said they were going to be cryptic, she meant it. So what's the message? Kate asked. It's some kind of riddle, Sticky said. He recited it for them. When looking in my looking glass, I spied a trusted face, alas. Not to be taken for him am I, but where, therefore, the Gemini? Oh, that certainly clears things up, said Constance, rolling her eyes. Sounds like he looked in the mirror and saw himself, then decided he was not himself, said Kate. I'm afraid that, is cl- that does clear things up. Mr. Benedict really is crazy. Sticky shook his head. It's not Mr. Benedict who sent the message, remember? I just saw him down the plaza. Oh, yeah, said Kate. It must be one of the others, then. But what are they trying to tell us? Rennie was chewing his lip thoughtfully. Let's hear the message again, Sticky. Sticky repeated it. What's a Gemini, anyway? asked Constance. A constellation, a sign of a zodiac, or a person born under that sign, said Sticky. You're not very helpful, George Washington, said Constance. Who are the zodiacs, and why are they so keen on making signs? The zodiac is more like a diagram that has to do with stars and planets and whatnot, said Rennie, trying to make it simple. Your zodiac sign has to do with when you're born. If you're born in late April, for example, you're a Taurus, the sign of a bull. You can also be a Pisces, the sign of a fish. Or a Capricorn, the, uh, sign of a goat, says Sticky. Right, the sign of a goat. And so on. You get the idea. Your sign depends on your birthday. So now we're supposed to find out when somebody was born? Who? This is ridiculous, Constance declared. I think I know what the message means, Kate said in a sudden, uncomfortable tone. It's saying some people aren't who they seem. That we can't trust the people we thought we could. In other words, Constance is right. We've been tricked. Whoever sent us the message must have been duped as well. It's Ronder or number two trying to warn us. It's a little late to warn us, isn't it? Rennie pointed out. And what's this about a Gemini? Kate looked very uncomfortable indeed. She must think one of us took part in the deception. Someone had a secret pact with Mr. Benedict to help get the others on the island. You're saying one of us is the Gemini, said Sticky, appalled. I'm sorry, said Kate. It's the only thing I can think of. At this suggestion, everyone grew quiet looking at one another with unpleasant feelings of suspicion. Well, there's no point in putting it off, Kate said. If I'm right, we can figure this out pretty quickly. Let's tell each other our birthdays. Everybody but Constance gave their birth dates at once. Not a Gemini among them. But Constance refused. This is nonsense. If I were a Gemini, which I'm not, we don't know for sure that's what the message means. If you're not a Gemini, Sticky said, why don't you prove it? You prove it yourself, Constance snapped. How do we know you didn't lie? Can you prove when you were born, Mr. Capricorn? 
Uh, Sticky began, for of course he would not. Constance turned to Kate. What about you, Miss Tantalus? Can't you prove that you're for us? Kate hesitated, trying to think of an indigenous response that rhymed. Unfortunately, nothing seemed to rhyme with Constance. Can anybody here prove it? Constance challenged. She's right, Rennie said with a feeling of great relief. There's no way to prove it. Even in the dim moonlight, he noted Constance's look of gratitude. She'd been very worried about being considered a traitor. That's actually good news, Rennie went on, because I'm convinced Mr. Benedict wouldn't send a message that made us turn against one another. Not if there wasn't some way of proving the truth. The message must mean something else. You keep forgetting, Siggy said. Mr. Benedict is here on the island. He's not sending us any messages. He can't be both places at once. That's it, Rennie cried. The others shushed him. That's it, he repeated, this time in an excited whisper. Both places at once. Sticky, what's the sign for a Gemini? Sign of the twin, Sticky said offhandedly. His eyes widened. Wait a minute. That's right, said Rennie. I think Mr. Benedict has a long lost brother. As it always the case with the society, some arguing remained to be done. Kate wanted to know why Mr. Benedict hadn't told them he had a twin on the island, to which Rennie replied that he probably hadn't known himself. But if he hadn't known it then, Kate persisted, how didn't he know it now? The looking glass, Rennie said with a grin, remember? When looking in my looking glass, I spied a trusted face. Mr. Benedict wasn't referring to his mirror. He meant his telescope. They'd just seen him up today, remember? So, he saw Mr. Curtin for the first time today, said Sticky, when looking through the telescope. I'll bet it was quite a shock, Rennie said. But how could Mr. Benedict know he was not a twin? Kate asked. They were born together. They must have been separated as babies, Rennie said. Mr. Benedict told me he was an orphan. When his parents died, he was sent here from Holland to live with his aunt. Mr. Curtin must have been sent somewhere else. But they're both geniuses, and they've always been interested in the same things, Kate said, her imagination catching on. And so at last they've been drawn together. Wow, said Sticky. Uh-huh, I'm sleepy, said Constance, who chose not to be impressed. Rennie ignored her. It's strange news, but good news. At least now we know we haven't been tricked. Sticky, better to th- send them a message that we says we understand. Sticky did so, and at once in the woods began flashing a response. Sticky watched closely, relating the words as they came. Good job, good night, good... L-. They stopped signaling, Sticky whispered, frowning. In a moment, he saw the reason. Executives! A pair of them have gone onto the plaza. They're just standing around talking. Now they're sitting on a bench. Looks like they're going to stay a while. The message was almost finished anyway, Kate said with a terrific yawn. And frankly, I'm toasted. Can't we call it a night? Rennie and Sticky agreed, but Constance was incredulous. How can we call it a night? We don't even know what they're going to say. Kate laughed. Good grief, Constance. Are you joking? Constance was indigenous. Are you? It couldn't possibly have been good grief. The second word start with L-U. Startled, Kate opened her mouth to reply, but Rennie cut her off. It's a good point, Constance. In fact, I'm pretty sure they were going to say good luck, don't you think? Constance seemed skeptical about this. After all, she said, they couldn't be sure what the word was going to be. But as she was sleepier than any of them, she'd been rubbing her eyes for an hour. She consented to adjourn the meeting. Meeting adjourned, said the others.